Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, listeners. A quick announcement before we jump into today's episode. You've heard us talk about the Cafe Insider, whose members get a weekly podcast hosted by frequent Stay Tuned guest Ann Milgram and me. Members also get bonus content from Stay Tuned, a weekly note from me, early access to live events, and more. We've been fortunate to have many of you ask about giving Insider as a gift. Well, starting now, you can. Head to cafe.com slash gift to help your friends make sense of law and politics. Annual gift memberships are $49.99, 30% off the regular annual price. Thank you for being a member of the Stay Tuned community, and we hope you and your friends will consider joining Insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash gift. Happy holidays, and on to the show. From Cafe, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Totally unprepared for how completely taken and dedicated I would become to the mission of it. Your job is to do the right thing and you're using your powers for good and not for evil. That's Sally Yates, live from the Buckhead Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. A 27-year veteran of the Department of Justice, Sally started out as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia and rose in the ranks, becoming the first female U.S. attorney for that office in 2009, the same year as I became U.S. attorney. Sally went on to serve as the Deputy Attorney General in the Obama administration and then stayed on during the Trump transition at the president's request as the Acting Attorney General for 10 days before being fired by Trump himself. Sound familiar? We'll get into all of that, plus why having a mission matters, the importance of humor, and the one wall we actually need. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Personal Capital. Personal Capital provides financial advice from a team of registered advisors, and it gives you the online financial tools so you can see a 360-degree view of all your money, all in one place. Get more information at personalcapital.com. Personal Capital. Invest with logic. My guest this week is Sally Yates. She's a former federal prosecutor and a good friend. You may recognize her name because back in 2017, she was fired by Donald Trump for refusing to enforce the infamous travel ban, an executive order issued without warning that attempted to ban travelers and refugees from several countries with Muslim-majority populations. 
While that version of the ban was contested in court, a later iteration of the order was upheld by the Supreme Court in June 2018. Today, Sally is a partner at an Atlanta-based firm, King & Spaulding, and an outspoken defender of our institutions and our country's principles. She joined me on stage in Atlanta to talk about her time in the Department of Justice, how to keep cool under pressure, why in the Trump era we still shouldn't govern to the extreme, and how one of the most difficult decisions she ever made involved a man by the name of Eric Rudolph. But first, let's get to your questions. Stay tuned. Hi, Preet and Ann. This is Mike calling from Linwood, Washington. I listen every week to both your shows, and they're great. Do you think it would be helpful for the impeachment articles to list the specific U.S. statutory code numbers for the Campaign Finance Law and Impoundment Act in order to clarify to the public the actual United States laws that are on the books that Trump has actually broken? Congressman Liu of California did so yesterday in the Judiciary Committee meeting, and it seemed powerful. Thanks, and keep up the great work you do. Mike, that's a great question. I think there's been a lot of speculation about what the articles of impeachment would look like. The big news this week, obviously, is that we've now seen the draft articles. They may change uh, over the course of the next day as the House Judiciary Committee goes into what's called markup, and there could be some additions, and there could be additions of the sort that you mentioned. The specific insertion of statutory code citations. My view is the articles of impeachment are short, clear, concise. There are two of them. They're understandable. Abuse of power. Obstruction of Congress. You'll note that not only are there not specific statutory citations in these draft articles, but even the words that we've been hearing a lot of over the last number of weeks, extortion, bribery, quid pro quo, those words are not in the articles either. And my sense is there was a deliberate decision, probably after some considerable debate, to try to make this plain English, to try to not make this overly legalistic. The public understands obstruction, the public understands abuse of power, and determinations on whether or not that threshold has been met are in the eye of the beholder. And those beholders, for now, at the impeachment stage, are the members of the House. And it's not clear to me, although I see the argument for it, that you would strengthen the articles of impeachment by listing specific statutory codes. Because I think the nature of impeachment and a trial in the Senate that would result in the removal of the president from office, in some ways, I think you don't want that to degrade into a hyper-technical assessment of the elements of particular statutes that were enacted long after the Constitution was established. Remember, the Constitution predates all of these current statutory codes that some might want to put into the articles of impeachment. There are downsides because it renders a decision a little bit amorphous. It makes it a little less clear uh, what you're saying the president did wrong and how it comports with a usual understanding of the violation of law, a high crime or a misdemeanor. But impeachment and trial on impeachment is something different from what we see in everyday courts for a lot of reasons that I've mentioned before and, and additional reasons that I'll mention going forward. So it's a good question. I think they could have done it that way. I think it makes sense not to. Hi, Preet. This is Eric calling from Madison, Wisconsin. In various types of uh, legal proceedings, you hear different standards. Sometimes you hear uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Sometimes you hear uh, the preponderance of the evidence. I'm just wondering in an impeachment proceeding, uh, which of those or is there some other standard that's uh, appropriate? And is that really determined? Thank you. So, Eric, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I think it's an issue that has not gotten as much attention as you might have expected it to. In criminal cases, like I oversaw for years, there are very specific standards for getting a search warrant, probable cause, for getting an indictment in the grand jury, probable cause, to convict at trial, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil cases, there's a standard known as preponderance of the evidence, as you mentioned. And that's very important, so that the finder of fact or the judge, depending on the, on the case, knows exactly how to apply the law and the facts. 
and knows exactly what the threshold is to determine liability or not liability, or guilt versus no guilt. So it's an interesting thing. It's, you know, reason number 468 why this impeachment and subsequent trial, although vaguely analogous to a criminal proceeding, is actually very, very different. I have not seen, and maybe some impeachment scholars can correct me on this, I have not seen any articulated standard of proof, either for impeachment or for conviction in the Senate. Uh, There's none in the Constitution. The Constitution provides the entire and sole basis for the impeachment power of the Congress, which is why all sorts of questions with respect to how the evidence is received, what kind of evidence can be received, what the overall rules are, those are decided by the body itself, the Senate itself. Now, I've seen an argument made by some people, including by Representative Justin Amash, who I think is dead on with respect to a lot of his analysis. And he has urged his colleagues in the House to vote in favor of impeachment, analogizing that impeachment is just a set of allegations. It's just an indictment, like you would have in an ordinary criminal case. And the threshold for that is probable cause that a crime was committed, and it was probably done by the person that is named in the indictment. And he says, look, that low burden of proof, that low threshold has been met in the case of Donald Trump and Ukraine. And while he's technically correct there, as I've said before, and as I observed when I was in office, and as I think I wrote about in my book, prosecutors don't march into the grand jury if they have just a shade above probable cause, because they know that the case is not over then. Then they have to take the case to trial in front of a jury where the burden of proof is much, much higher. And I think prosecutors worth their salt and who are responsible think ahead to how it's going to go at trial and not willy-nilly run into the grand jury every time they have one tiny iota of evidence that puts it just beyond and above the threshold of probable cause. So I'm not sure I agree with Justin Amash's analogy there. But putting that aside, I actually think there's overwhelming proof that the president committed a high crime or misdemeanor. Then we get to the question of what the standard should be in the Senate. And I don't know that it's beyond a reasonable doubt. I think some people will argue that particularly those who want to vote to acquit the president and say, well, there's a lack of clarity. And also, you don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There is some doubt as to the motives of the president, the intent of the president. They'll point to other aspects of testimony that put into some doubt what I think are clear conclusions and others think are clear conclusions. But again, this is not just a constitutional and legal process. It's also a political process. And the senators can essentially choose to vote how they want. And whether it's based on conscience, because they think the president has abused his power and obstructed Congress, Or their vote is based on expedient political reasoning because they don't want to incur the ire of the president. That's up to them. So like you, I look forward to seeing how people apply what standards. This question comes from Twitter, from Twitter user Rational Person. I like the handle. In the unlikely event Donald Trump is impeached by the Senate, is he allowed to still run for office in 2020? Hashtag AskPreet. So Rational Person. I think what you meant to say is in the unlikely event that he is convicted in the Senate, um, not impeached, impeachment happens in the House, can he still run for office in 2020? Well, in the unlikely event that that happens, and it is based on the articles of impeachment that have been drawn up, the answer is provided by the last sentence in the draft articles of impeachment that directly bear on this president's ability to be in office in the future. And literally, the last sentence of the articles of impeachment read as follows, quote, President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. So assuming this is the language on which the president is impeached and then thereafter convicted in the Senate, it would be a bar on him running in 2020 or any year thereafter. It looks like it would also be a bar on his being appointed to any position of trust, which is most positions in the United States federal government, and also would bar him, I think, from running for House or Senate.
This question comes from Twitter user Bob Cauley, who asks, couldn't the House Dems pursue court cases for access to witnesses' docs while moving forward with hearings slash impeachment? Seems like an important precedent to establish force of House subpoenas. Hashtag AskPreet. Yeah, like I think this is a point of debate. Ann Milgram and I have discussed this very question on the Cafe Insider pod, and I've discussed it with other friends of mine. And I think that the House Dems were in some ways between a rock and a hard place. You know, I have worried for a while that there's additional information that's being left on the table while they proceed with great speed to impeachment and then trial in the Senate. But there is a clock. The election isn't far away. And sometimes these proceedings can get bogged down. And Adam Schiff, in announcing the articles of impeachment this week, made a pretty good case for why you don't wait. He pointed specifically to the ongoing litigation relating to Don McGahn's testimony and took eight months for them to get a decision on it. Now, that doesn't directly answer your question of why not proceed now and then in parallel try to get that other testimony and see what happens with it. And I think there's a reasonable argument for that. You know, I might have done it that way. But it is kind of awkward to proceed with impeachment and trial and have that be concluded. And then three months after that, have the litigation be resolved in your favor, perhaps. And now all of a sudden you can take the testimony of someone like John Bolton. You know, what the hell are you going to do with that at that point? And this is not a great legal response, but there's a little bit of awkwardness in suddenly having that happen. It also, by the way, doesn't allow closure. And I think there's a reason why both Democrats and Republicans want there to be an end point to all of this. So it it just seems like an odd situation to be in, an odd world to be in, with impeachment accomplished, the trial accomplished, and you still have seven cases winding their way through the courts with respect to testimony that was needed in connection with those things that are now already done. It's just, it's a little odd, and I don't blame the Dems for proceeding this way, uh, although there's reasonable basis to have done it the other way around. Sally Yates. Are they standing? Oh my. So that is a first. They didn't stand for you? They did not. (laughs) They went to sleep for me. How are you? I'm great. It's so much fun, actually, to not just be listening to your, although I was listening for a while, but not just to be listening to your podcast, (laughs) but to actually get to participate in it. So I'm thrilled to be here. What is, I don't know how you're going to answer this, but I got to ask, what does it feel like to be an American icon. And we'll get into why that may be and what happened at the beginning of the Trump administration, but people have a lot of hope in you and they see a lot in you and they are inspired by you and they stand and clap like, you know, you're a musician in a rock band, which I think is fully deserved. How do you feel about that? Well, first, I mean, it's incredibly generous, the reaction that that you all had here tonight and that, you know, happens some other times. And doesn't happen some other times, what? (laughs) There is that Twitter thing, so not everybody loves me, but, but, you know... You gotta um, block people more. Yeah. (laughs) You can do that? I didn't know that was... (laughs) When you're in the midst of a storm, when you're in the eye of the storm, and look, you had your own storm, you don't really have an appreciation for, for... um, how other people are reacting or, or, or going to react. 
And after I left the department, and I can say fired, after some therapy now, I'm good with that. Let's you say know, it that's, together. Yeah, yeah let's... Uh, Fired. fired. Okay. Not, not quite together, but that's yeah. <laughs> a little off there. But, you know, I started getting letters from people. And it wasn't easy to find me. The marshal service that, that was responsible for my protection, they had pretty much wiped me off of the internet. So there's no address or anything. And so people would send letters to like DOJ or to the Atlanta bar, to my law school, some of them, you know, different places that then would make their way to our home address. And I was so moved that people, but, but I really don't think it's me. I think it's more that, that folks were looking for something that would give them hope that the, the world is gonna get back to normal again. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that I just did my job. And there's been, but I also feel a responsibility for that too. So. We'll come back to the end of your public service career. Let's go to the beginning of it. Okay. Explain to folks, and I've done this from time to time with law students and with, with people who are advanced in their careers, like why, why on earth do you decide to spend a gazillion years in the Justice Department? What, what attracted you about being a federal prosecutor? You know, I didn't think I was going to spend a gazillion years there. When I went, I was in private practice here at King's Balding then, and I thought I was going to go for a few years and then go back to the firm or some other firm. But why'd you go in the first place? I went because Griffin Bell, who was the former attorney general under um, President Carter, was a partner at KNS, and I had done a pro bono case in, in the office, most important case I'll ever have in my life, representing the family of the first African-American landowners in Bear County. And it's a, it's a long story in and of itself, but he saw how how important that case was to me and how meaningful it was. And he said, I think you ought to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office here. And at that time, and I'm dating myself, this is back late 80s, there weren't that many people from big firms that were going to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I didn't really have a lot of other people to look to for that. But so I went really on his recommendation, totally unprepared for how completely taken and dedicated I would become to the mission of it. It wasn't just getting trial experience or handling cases on your own. I mean, yeah, that's part of what you do. But as you were saying back there, I mean, your job is to do the right thing. And you're using your powers for good and not for evil. And, you know, that... It's hard to leave a job like that. I know, it really it is. You know what it takes? Yeah. Getting fired. Fired, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you left a lot of money on the table. Yeah, I, I didn't you know, line up the sandbags outside the office or anything to, to have to drag me out. I yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned mission. Yeah. And, you know, it's a corny word for a lot of folks. Why is that an important word? And you used it in office. I used it. Why is it an important word? And, and what is the mission? The mission is, is really simple, yet difficult to achieve sometimes. It's to seek justice. And that's it. It's not to put people in prison. It's not to win trials. It's to seek justice. And sometimes that means, like you were describing there, when you have corrupt elected officials that need to be held accountable, that means sending people to prison. But other times, it means looking at uh, uh, an investigation and making a decision that it's not appropriate to move forward there. And it also means being proportional. 
You know, holding people accountable also means doing it in proportion to their level of wrongdoing. And so all of that is about seeking and, and doing it in a way that engenders the trust of the people that you're serving. It's not just about what the end result is. It's how you go about doing it. So what's funny to me is the mission is very is deadly serious, right? And I think in the best cases, it's inspiring. And you're an inspirational figure and the work that the people in our office, I, mean, I would always say, what inspires me about being the U.S. attorney is the people around me and the work that they do. And it's deadly serious. And when you stand up as the deputy attorney general, the U.S. attorney, and you announce charges, it's always serious and no one's smiling. And people are very surprised. Like, I crack a joke from time to time. Now, as a podcaster, I crack more jokes than I did before. It almost feels weird to say that doing that because of the stakes, that being in that job was fun. Was it fun? And why? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, there are aspects of it that are fun. I mean, if you have a complicated white-collar case and you're trying to to figure it out and to pull on the threads and to see if you can can put together what actually happened here, yeah, that's challenging and that can be fun. Um, Sentencings were never fun, never fun, because invariably there are family members who are sitting or, or standing right behind the defendant who are going to suffer as a result of this individual going to prison. So, and I remember one time there was a young AUSA in my office after I was U.S. attorney and she told me that she just had to quit. She'd only been there about a year and a half and she said, sentencings are just too hard. And I told her the day she needs to quit is the day that sentencing stop becoming hard because that should never be something that you take joy in. Did she quit? Um, not then, but about five years later. Five years later. Yeah. 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 Not to plug my book again, but <laughs> I have a substantial What's section. What's the name of your book again? Perfect. Doing Justice. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Available everywhere. Uh-huh. Um, I've said in the podcast before, I don't know if I've ever discussed this with you, and I don't know if you have an aspiration to be on the bench. I don't. And the principal reason I don't because I don't want to sentence people, which seems odd for a federal prosecutor who served for a long time, who made recommendations about sentencing and who made charging decisions that basically you know, made clear what the sentencing had to be. It, it has never been clear to me how you decide to be God in the circumstance, and you need the people to do it, but how to decide how many days, weeks, months, years you separate a human being from their liberty based on some chart and it's not for me, so I don't, I don't do that. Uh, this is a lead into your termination from your service. Can you explain to folks, I've tried it a bunch, and I think you'll do it more eloquently than I will. So people think that you have all these cabinet positions and you have all these agencies, Commerce Department, Energy Department, Department of Defense, et cetera, and, and Department of Justice, this is one of a bunch. But you and I have discussed and believe the Department of Justice is different from all of, the, all of the rest in terms of what the president can demand in terms of his will and his bidding. He can tell all sorts of folks, we want to do something different on trade. We want to do something different on the economy. But there are limits to what he can say about what the Justice Department does. Can you explain how the Justice Department is different and why it should be? Yeah, you know, DOJ is not just another federal agency. Um, Yes, of course, it's in the executive branch. But, you know, literally through Democratic and Republican administrations, this is not a partisan thing here, 
um, presidents in the past have recognized that the rule of law only works and the public can only have confidence in it if the decisions are made based on the facts and the law and nothing else. And so there has been a wall, one wall we actually need, a wall between... (laughs) the White House and the Justice Department when it comes to criminal investigations and prosecutions. And that wall, by the way, is free, and the Mexicans don't have to pay for it. (laughs) Although the wall is is a little damaged these days. It's a little porous these days. Um, But, and so the president could certainly talk to DOJ about broad policy objectives that he or someday she might want to accomplish but never, ever, ever would anybody at the White House have anything to do with any criminal case, period. I mean, it's sort of the old, it's, it ensures that the law can't be used as a sword to punish political enemies or to protect political friends. And again, that's been observed through administrations past for decades since Watergate, and in, in large respect, a, a reaction to Watergate. But, yeah. It's not actually in a statute, no. right? It is not actually written in, in scripture, you know, criminal law, that the president of the United States can't call up a local U.S. attorney and say, you know what? You should look at the mayor of Atlanta and investigate the mayor of Atlanta. You and I, I believe, think whether that person is a friend or a foe or a political uh, benefit to the president, you and I view that kind of an order on the part of an elected official, the most powerful elected official in the country, to a local U.S. attorney to investigate a particular person at the behest of the president, not only unethical, not only against the rule of law, I would venture, and we'll get to this later, impeachable, even though, even though it does not violate any particular statute. Reaction? Yeah, it's a norm. Um, And I know that that makes some people uncomfortable to say it's just a norm, but the norms are like the fabric that hold everything together. A lot um, of how our government operates properly is based on norms. And it requires the good faith of the people who are in the positions who are going to observe those norms. You know, some people say you ought to to make it a rule that there can't be any involvement there. And I get that, but I think we have to be really careful about not overcorrecting from where we are right now and unnecessarily tie the hands of a president in the future when there could be some set of circumstances where I can't exactly picture what they are right now, but there could be some set of circumstances where a president should be able to have some type of dialogue with the Department of Justice on a particular criminal case. And so sort of trying to to govern to the extreme that we have right now could put us in a more difficult position in the future. Also explain to folks the general, and I think correct and appropriate and ethical culture of a U.S. attorney's office insofar as nobody knows the political affiliation of anybody. I used to say, we had this conversation in anticipation of the interview tonight, that there are three, if you're, if you're in the Department of Justice, you think the world consists of three political parties, Democrat, Republican, federal prosecutor, which is a way of saying you don't care about the first two. Explain that to folks. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's been so disturbing, I think, about watching you know, the last couple of years is that I think some people in the public have the perception that 
Decisions are being made at DOJ or the FBI based on someone's partisan preference. You know, I can tell you, when I was, I had no idea whether my fellow AUSAs were Republicans or Democrats, unless you sort of happened to get into a, a you know, discussion with them. And certainly when I was U.S. attorney, absolutely no idea and did not care about the partisan affiliation of anyone that I was hiring. You know, most of the corruption cases that I did when I was here in Atlanta, they happened to be Democrats. Um, there were definitely some Republicans as well, but that, that just wasn't, that, that's just not a factor. And that's not something unique about us. That's about how DOJ works and how the really dedicated civil servants at the Department of Justice, just like some of the dedicated civil servants that you saw in the impeachment hearing over, you know, over the last couple of weeks. So you had a long tenure uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Atlanta, uh, and then you got tapped to be one of the most important public law enforcement officials in the country as the Deputy Attorney General, and then for a brief period, how long, 10 days? The Attorney General. But who's counting, yeah. (laughs) And when Anthony Scaramucci got fired after 11 days, did you think... Are, God damn it. You're comparing me to the mooch? I mean, really? I mean, that's... <laughs> it's a cheap, it was a cheap yeah. <laughs> laugh line. And that's so, the bait, right? <laughs> yes, that's what counts in the evening show. So you're in that position. I think you've written and said that you thought it would be uneventful because it's the standard sort of practice that there's, you know, a transitional period and... Not a ton of stuff happens usually in the first week to 10 days (laughs) of an administration. This one was different. And so on day eight, I think, the President of the United States issues an executive order, I guess we refer to it as a travel ban, about which you, as the Attorney General of the United States of America in an acting position, had no warning and no heads up. Can you first say how crazy that is? Totally crazy. I mean, the way that things work is that if you're going to do something like this, then you would have what's called an interagency process. And and I know that sounds incredibly bureaucratic, but really it's not. What it means is, is that you get input from the different agencies who actually know something about this about how it would Oh, work. expertise. Yeah, it's, I, I know oh. it seems quaint, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> that you get input from them about, first the president might talk about what his objectives are and the agencies work through how they might be able to legally be able to, to obtain those objectives. So, okay, so, so there's nothing though. This was like cooked up in a closet. I think, so that happens, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know you've been asked this a bunch of times, but just not as a lawyer, but just as a person, how do you hear about it? And what is your reaction as Sally Yates, not the acting attorney general? Like, are you like, holy crap, do you curse? Do you, do you, what do you say to your husband? Like, not to get into marital privilege, but <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to understand, because you and I have talked and we're friends, but I never asked you, in that moment when you found out about this overbroad travel ban, before you wrote the memo and, and did all those courageous things, in that moment, what were you thinking? 
Well, I guess I have to tell you what the context was of the moment, because you're right, I had expected this to be this uneventful time where you just sort of keep everything running smoothly. Yeah, you're like, you make sure the staples and the stapler. Yeah, just, you know, it's right. not supposed to be a big thing. In fact, my chief of staff, when she was leaving, because I could only keep one staff person with me, and the, the career people are still there, but just one political appointee, she told me things were going to be so quiet during that time, I would have time for a lot of long, boozy lunches. Um, those came later. I had those, but that's... <laughs> Like on day 11. Yeah. <laughs> Could have been the night of, of 10. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I was in the car, actually, leaving the White House because the Mike Flynn thing had happened during this time as well. And I was there for the second day talking to Don McGahn, the White House counsel, about Mike Flynn and his um, interaction with the Russian ambassador, Ambassador Kislyak, God, this just seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? You know, when this... It, and <laughs> so I'm in the car. I've just left the second meeting with McGann. As you can imagine, this is, you know, a pretty tense time. I'm in the car, and I get a call from my principal deputy, you know, the one person who could stay with me. And he says, you're not going to believe this, but I was just online reading the New York Times, and it looks like... President Trump has signed some sort of travel ban. And as you said, this is the first I had heard of it. It's the first anybody had heard of this. And it's day eight. Yes, yeah, at day eight. And... Um, Did you curse? Um, I, I'm, I don't recall if I cursed at that particular moment, but there was definitely some okay. after that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so... We really spent that time. I mean, this is fri late Friday you, afternoon. Did, did you call someone at the White House to say what's going on? Yeah, and I can't really talk about okay. it, but yes, there was that. So you, th you then spent some time, uh, given that you're a serious lawyer and care about the Constitution, analyzing it and thinking about it. How did you go about trying to come to a determination of whether or not that executive order was proper and legal and constitutional? Well, it, it's, I mean, it was Friday, late Friday afternoon when we found out about it. And literally, we didn't have anything. Um, I mean, I am reading the executive order on my iPad in the car, um, which is not how you normally would do these things. So um, we spent the weekend interacting with the White House and trying to get our arms around what they were trying to accomplish here um, and who was in and who was out. Again, lifetime ago, this was travel ban one. We're on travel ban three now. But one actually applied to people who had valid visas and, and who green were cars. lawful permanent residents. Exactly. Who were on their green way back cars. to the country. So we had people who were literally midair as the president signs this thing and were then being turned away at the airport who were, you know, people with valid green cards and visas. So... We were able to get through that over the weekend and sort of procedurally doing some things there to, to, to address those situations. What was but, the, can I ask, what was, the, um, what was the tone of the conversations between you and your folks at the Justice Department and the White House? Was it cordial? Was it like, what the hell is going on? Like, what, what was, the, what was the, the feeling in the room? Well, at first we were mystified. Um, that A, that this thing just sprang out of nowhere, 
and we didn't know anything about it. And then, yeah, there was some tension there um, because we had to have lawyers in court immediately, DOJ lawyers in court, to address the challenges that are coming in from people who are being turned away at the airport. And so our folks needed to know what to do. So then you do some analysis. Yep. Over, over the, the weekend, course yeah. of days. Right. And you determine ultimately what? Well, we are reviewing things over the weekend. So challenges are being filed. Um, you know, DOJ, very hierarchical organization. I mean, normally the way these things would work is that people, you know, at levels below would do a lot of analysis and pretty memos and it would sort of make its way after a lot of review up to me. There was no time for any of that. I mean, I'm literally online, as are the other people at DOJ, reading challenges as they're filed, you know, finding the briefs on our computers and iPads, looking up the cases ourselves, and we're trying to, to, to wrap our arms around what the challenges are, what the defenses would be, and come Monday morning is when we were told that um, the judges and one of the challenges had, had sent word that he wanted to know what the Department of Justice position was on the constitutionality of the travel ban. So, and so what was the, the principal worry and affront of that broad travel ban was what? was the Establishment Clause. Well, there were two, but not to get too um, technical on it. There was a statutory concern, but the broader concern was the Establishment Clause. And, you know, we had a and president... Establishment Clause is government shall make no religion. Exactly. Laws that, that would discriminate based on religion. And Because the travel ban seemed to be directed at people of the Muslim faith. Right. I mean, you had... Not even seemed to be. It was but kind of only clearly. applied to yeah, Muslim-majority countries. And it was made against the backdrop of the president having stated over and over again on the campaign trail of his, his intent to effectuate a Muslim ban. And even after he was elected. Also, travel ban one actually favored Christians. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at that... Um, we called everybody into the conference room because we've got to take a position the next day. And so I wanted to talk this through with all of the career people who would have a role in, in the defense of this, as well as the Trump appointees, because it's Trump appointees at DOJ now, with the exception of Matt, my deputy and I. And so we spent quite some time going through what the challenges were and what the defenses would be. And I can't go into all of that. There's still that deliberative process privilege, but put it this way, it became really clear to me that to defend this, I was going to have to send Department of Justice lawyers into court to take the position that the travel ban had absolutely nothing to do with religion. And that was obviously... Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, and it, well, it was a pretext. I mean, they were coming up with other arguments that you could make for why it was done, but that was pretextual. And the Department of Justice shouldn't be in, I don't think any lawyer should be arguing a pretext. I sure don't think that Department of Justice lawyers should be. So now fast forward like eight days or nine days, and I will never forget, and I know you and you're my friend, I was on the subway and I had... I think it was, it was a Monday, right? When you issued your memo? 
was a Monday evening, and I was still the U.S. attorney, and I was on the subway going up to Grand Central, I think, to go catch a train home, and I saw your memo. And I will tell you that it is rare to read a legal document that's sent sort of to a bureaucratic group and feel great pride and inspiration. And I did. And I remember thinking, good for you. How fraught was the decision to send a, a memo saying, and for those of you who forget, Sally essentially sent a memo around saying that the Department of Justice, and correct me if I'm, if I'm not getting it completely correct, would not enforce travel ban one because you had concerns about its constitutionality. That is not a small thing to do. They're liable to stand up again. <laughs> it's a sappy bunch, these guys. It's a hometown crowd. So. Yes. <laughs> um, but, don't just, me, but don't just answer my question legally. Like, what? No. How did, like, did you sleep the night before? Like, no, well, I had to, the thing was, is there was 72 hours from the time I learned about the travel ban in the car after leaving the White House to when I had to make the decision. Um, that's not a lot of time that you'd like to have to be able to get your arms around something like this. But you're right, the harder decision here was not whether I was going to be part of this. Once, you know, I sat and listened to this and thought, we're going to have to go in there and argue something that's just not true, I knew I was not going to be part of that. The harder decision was whether I should resign or direct the department not to defend. And I understand, you know, there's some people who think I should have resigned. I, I get that. Um, but here's the thing, is that I wasn't like head of the civil division or some other component of the department. I was the acting attorney general of the United States. And I was responsible, not just for my own personal integrity here, I was responsible for the integrity of the entire department. And this wasn't about some tangential issue or some arcane statutory instruction. This was about a fundamental issue of religious discrimination. And so it didn't feel to me like I would be doing my job if I just resigned. And so that's why we, in your first question that you asked me there, I am really uncomfortable <laughs> with this sort of, quote, icon thing. or I did my job. That's what you're supposed to do. I remember my dad, you all know the old Southern expression. You're not supposed to congratulate a man for not robbing a bank. That's kind of how I feel about this. That's what you're supposed to do is do your job. And so to me, you know, as I puzzled through this, you know, we all talked in the conference room. I talked with Matt some, sort of closed the door to my office and thought about it a bit. There wasn't long to think about it because people needed direction, but thought about it a bit. And uh, yeah, I can tell you, <laughs> 72 hours, 72 days, I would make the exact same decision again. You can clap for that. And, <laughs> <laughs> so we typed it up and hit send. And then actually, 
I sent a copy later to my husband, um, who's here tonight, Comer. And um, <laughs> woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> and he said, So when are you thinking about sending this? <laughs> I said, I did about an hour and a half ago. But <laughs> Look, I think it was an incredible thing you did. Did you know when you sent that memo, uh, without a doubt, that you would be terminated? Or were you not sure? No, I mean, I, um, and I probably sound incredibly naive when I say this. Um, I certainly recognized there was a good chance I'd be fired. If I, if I was too stupid to figure that out, I shouldn't have had that job. But, <laughs> but there was also part of me that, again, perhaps naively hoped that this would be something that would cause the Trump administration to put the brakes on you were and, wrong. I know. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> look, it was early. We hadn't seen everything yet. But to put the brakes on and, and to sort of think about this, and look, I, I, I wouldn't have changed that last moment for anything. I mean, to have done anything else would have felt like a betrayal of the 27 years before that. But I'll admit, I didn't particularly want to have the period on my service after those 27 years being being fired. That's a um, great thing. You just said the word betrayal. And that's interesting to me because Sean Spicer, remember that guy? Yeah. Remember his suits didn't really fit? He's a terrible I dancer. I get that image of the dancing, <laughs> the dancing with the stars thing and all out of my head. Sean Spicer, he lasted a little bit longer than you, in fairness. <laughs> Sean Spicer put out a statement on day 10 or 11 referring to your conduct as a betrayal uh, how did you feel about that? Did you see that comment at the time? Yeah, I saw it. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't feel good, but I, I, I was absolutely comfortable that the decision that I made was the right one for the department, and I didn't really need Sean Spicer's approval <laughs> on that. So, yeah. that's exactly that's exactly the right orientation. Does your experience there give you some perspective or, or, or cause you to think about these other people over the subsequent three years who continue in the administration, who have seen bad things, who clearly personally think that bad decisions are being made on the same order as the travel ban, and in some cases probably worse things, that they either resign or are fired and don't say anything? Uh, or they're quiet about it. There are others, including you know, former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly and General Mattis, who are very measured in what they say. Do you have a view, generally, and also based on your personal experience, about what these longtime public servants should or should not be saying about their understanding of the president and the White House and their policies for the betterment of the country? Look, I'm not going to make a judgment about somebody else's decision on that. I know what I'm comfortable with and what feels right for me. Um, certainly, I think we all would hope that they would speak out more, but I'm not going to make a judgment about them. I think everybody has to make that decision for himself or herself. Very diplomatic. <laughs> all right, can we talk about impeachment because it's going on? Sure. Have you been following it? There's impeachment going on? Do you have... <laughs> It takes a lot of time yeah. to watch these hearings, and you have a real, unlike me, you have a real job. Um, 
Have you been following the hearings? Have you been watching? Yeah, I mean, I can't watch all day long like you do, but that's... Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I like to sit with popcorn and drink <laughs> all day. Do you think... Let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, and you will answer or not. Uh, how do you think Adam Schiff is doing? He's a former federal prosecutor like you and me, so I'm partial to his experience. How's he doing? You, you know, I think that he... I mean, I think he's done a fantastic job, actually. And what I, you know, one of the things that I think has been most important is that he's approached this with the right tone of being serious and respectful of the process, but also doing it in a way that is efficient and to the point and dignified. Um, You know, look, as, as... you know, troubled as we all are, or I'm assuming we all are here in this room, by um, the president's actions, I don't think any of us really should be gleeful about where we are right now. Um, It's a really sad and disturbing place that the president has put us now. And I think that, um, that he has really approached it with the right tone that is really essential to me for for this to be something that is not even more divisive in our country and doesn't allow the president to make it more divisive um, than it already is. Does it, does it bother you, and do you think it's a problem, that when Nancy Pelosi finally conducted a House-wide vote, that it was almost purely partisan about conducting an impeachment inquiry? Do you think that's bad for the country, bad for the impeachment inquiry, or bad in some other way? Well, I mean, look, you, I, I know that she was reluctant to, or at least I know, I mean, I've read, I don't know from any inside information here, but that um, she was reluctant to move forward unless she believed it would be a bipartisan process. And I get that in the sense that uh, for the public to accept this, that you would be hopeful that there would be. And actually, if you look back at Watergate, for example, and you see how different that was, um, and the Republican vote. There was a huge there. Republican yeah. vote yeah. in favor of the impeachment inquiry. Even right. in Clinton's time, there were 31 votes from Democrats. And I guess on one side, you could say, well, that means it's not great because it's not as bipartisan. And the other point of view is that at this moment in time, people are craven enough or fearful enough about the political power of the president that they're not doing what they think is right and they're just going along. Depends yeah, I mean, on your perspective. It's sure looking that way. Um, and, you know, look, I'm still holding out some hope that maybe you never know. Maybe if the dam breaks and the, the, they feel some safety in numbers. And the reason why I hope that is that, you know, I know uh, this sounds so hokey, but they've got a responsibility larger than, than just staying loyal to the president. And so do, do you see enough evidence based on what, what has come before the public that the president should be impeached? Well, look, call me old-fashioned, but when it comes to the trial, I think you ought to wait until the trial in the Senate. But before that, uh, impeachment, which is the allegation. Right, and that's like a charging stage here. Correct. Is there enough? Look, I think the evidence has been overwhelming with respect to the president's conduct. What do you think about some of the arguments made by the president's allies? Uh, as a former prosecutor. You know, the funny thing is, 
you talk about these things to some extent. I talk about them a lot because I don't have a real job. And I think you're doing okay for I'm yourself. I'm doing all right. Yeah. And uh, there's some basic legal things that get talked about, including the idea that, well, the money actually ended up going to Ukraine, so no harm, no foul. How many people did you prosecute for attempt or for, cons- for conspiracy? And but for the grace of God, the crime wasn't ultimately accomplished, including in my office, for example, multiple terrorists who tried to kill thousands of Americans failed. We still prosecuted them. What do you think about, what do you think about the fact that, you know, representatives of human beings in the country are putting forward arguments like, well, they didn't succeed in the crime, no harm, no foul. Like, how do you think about the fact that that is deemed to be persuasive. Well, and you haven't even mentioned the fact that the reason it was released was that the whistleblower allegations right. had then been revealed to the president. So that's like you get caught and then the money is released. Yeah. It's, yeah. Would you have dismissed a case on those, on those grounds? Well, yeah, we, we were very selective here. We only prosecuted completed crimes in the Northern <laughs> District of Georgia. Yeah. But what does it say? But some of these arguments are so absurd and I just wonder, like, are you and I in some kind of weird zone that we knew what crimes to prosecute because we were in that business, but that there are, you know, people of some prominence, including these House Republicans, who just brazenly make that point, and they just think people are going to co- go along with that. What, what does that say about public credulity about this whole thing? I, I, My personal favorite of all of those is the, well, the president said no quid pro quo. So that means, you know, that's like a guy goes into a bank with a gun (laughs) and says, give me all your money, and then yells, but I'm not robbing the bank on the way out. It's my money. And so he's not a bank robber then. I mean, that's just crazy. Yes, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it is. So everyone is now an armchair lawyer. And apparently you are now too. So. <laughs> that too. <laughs> All true. But I still have, but I have a goddamn degree. <laughs> and we you have really a full, want me to curse tonight. We have don't a full, you? Yeah, I do. Actually, I really do. And we have a full house listening to lawyers. But my worry is, so I have this worry. I wonder if you share it, that you and I have spent a career thinking about criminal justice and prosecution and doing the right thing according to the rules and and precedent and everything else. And on the one hand, people could say, well, there's now a renaissance in understanding about the law. Everyone's interested because of impeachment and because of the Mueller investigation. And so they're all getting a crash course in civics and in law. And that's one argument. The other argument is there's something about a criminal investigation of a president that is distorting. And whether it's an investigation of Hillary Clinton or or, or President Trump, most garden variety cases, even big deal cases that you and I oversaw, didn't generate the kind of interest that is necessarily generated by a potential criminal investigation of a human being who enjoys the support of 70 million Americans, Hillary or Donald Trump or anyone else. And that people's perceptions about justice and the appearance of justice and the prosecution appropriately of cases is being utterly distorted 
by the weirdness of all of this discussion having to do with a president that tens of millions of people adore and tens of millions of people want to go away. Do you worry about people's perceptions of justice because it, we're so focused on this case, which is utterly different from all the cases that you and I ever prosecuted? I worry about a lot of things um, right now, but I do, one of the things I am concerned about is people's perception of justice. I hadn't really thought about it in the context of because people are so focused on um, the impeachment issue with respect to the president. What I've been more concerned about is the lasting impact of undermining the public's confidence in institutions, and particularly the Department of Justice and the FBI and the t intelligence community and others, that, that that's going to potentially last way beyond the confines of this presidency. And that that is so corrosive and that we're becoming kind of numb to this and people start believing that that's actually how things work. And I know we can tell you that's not how it works at DOJ. And that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of really dedicated employees there who are trying hard every day to do the right thing. But if you were to listen to our president or some of his supporters sometime, they're perfectly willing to undermine the public's confidence in those institutions for their own personal gain. And that's, that's what worries me. I want to transition to one of the big cases that you oversaw when you were in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is a big deal to folks in Atlanta. And um, it relates to the 1996 bombing at Olympic Village. There's a movie coming out, Clint Eastwood movie coming out about it. And so my first question is, and I write about this a little bit in my book, <laughs> uh, because the biggest nightmare, people don't always appreciate this, the biggest nightmare for a prosecutor, I think, is and should be not that you lose a case where the person is guilty and you couldn't get it done, but that you mistakenly pursue someone who was innocent. And that kind of miscarriage is something that we should all worry about and lose sleep over. And this was not a prosecutorial error, but as people here know more than anyone else around the country, in the aftermath of that bombing, there, was, uh, there were press reports and suggestions and allegations that someone was responsible for the bombing, a man by the name of Richard Jewell, and that was not correct. My first question, and I have other questions for you, how does something like that happen and how do you avoid that? Well, how do you avoid identifying the wrong person or the information getting out? I mean, those are two, yeah. Yeah, how, how do you, it, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Because the press and, and law enforcement are different. They have parallel missions. There's a little bit less responsibility, no offense to the press, for members of the media because they don't have to prove their case in court. Prosecutors, I think, are a little bit more hesitant to make an allegation because they know they have to be put to their proof at some point in the future. But just, I guess, specifically with respect to that case and then more broadly, how do you think about making sure you get it right? Well, I think that's one of the things that you know, I tried to instill in the AUSAs in our office and certainly tried to keep in mind myself every day was the impact that you have on someone's life merely by initiating an investigation. And I'm not just talking about when it's, you know, the bombing of Centennial Park, but 
any investigation and um, the ripple effect that can have on them, regardless of whether they are ever charged. It's um, a, a really remarkable power that you have as a federal prosecutor. And you have to keep in mind that it's not your individual power, it's the power of the people, and to try to use it responsibly. Um, I don't know, I got involved in the case after Richard Jewell, so I'm not all that familiar about exactly how those decisions were made in, as it related to that. Um, but you know, it's not a, a necessarily unusual thing for someone to be a suspect and to then be cleared. I think what happened in this case is it obviously happened on a world stage with really profound um, and very unfortunate impact to him. So then a few years go by and a person is identified who was actually believed to be responsible for the bombing, Eric Rudolph. You were involved in that case. What was that like? Well, it was um, a very long-term case because we identified Rudolph actually after the Birmingham bombing. He had been responsible, Rudolph had been responsible for three in Atlanta, the Centennial Park bombing, and then a bombing at a women's um, clinic and a bar here in town. And then it was after the bombing at a women's clinic in Birmingham that he was identified. And unfortunately, after he's identified, he hears through a leak um, on the radio that he's wanted and then, you know, disappears into the mountains of North Carolina, not to be seen for years after that. That's reporting that is problematic. And that happens from time to time. So what's interesting to me is, but then eventually the law catches up with him. And he had information, obviously, because he was a perpetrator, given that, that one of the ways in which he perpetrated his crimes was with the explosive device of dynamite. And my understanding is <clears throat> that at some point he's under arrest and he's potentially facing the death penalty. And lawyers will do a lot of things to avoid their clients being put to death. And one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, that happened in the case was the lawyer suggests to your office and maybe directly to you that, well, you know what, among other things, uh, my client planted dynamite in a place. And the place is a, a highly frequented national park. And I believe he offered to identify where that dynamite was to abate a, a, a public tragedy in exchange for death penalty being taken off the table. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you think about analyzing the justice of that scenario. Yeah, that was one of the most difficult decisions I was involved in at DOJ. And, you know, we had always been worried. Rudolph used gunpowder in the Centennial Park bombing, uh, but all the rest of them were dynamite. And the FBI had identified where they believed the dynamite came from. There had been a big theft at another place in North Carolina, but we never found the rest of the dynamite. Um, and we knew there was a huge stash that was somewhere. We never found what we called his factory, where he made his bombs. And your concern was, that's live dynamite. Yeah. And if someone happens upon it, that's a tragedy, right? Right. And the lab guys at the Bureau had told us what was particularly concerning is that dynamite becomes very volatile over time if it's not turned on a regular basis. And when I got the call from his defense lawyer, um, telling me that, you know, 
I bet you guys are still wondering where that dynamite is. And, you know, I told him, yeah, we were. And he, you know, started into his story about how Rudolph could tell us where it is, um, but he wants you to take death off the table in both Atlanta and in Birmingham. And we were, obviously, you know, there are a lot of factors going into this. Um, First, it sort of felt like negotiating with a terrorist and that you shouldn't allow him to benefit from that. And look, we can talk about there, you know, really mixed feelings about the death penalty and and what you should, whether we should have one or not. Um, But we were very concerned that, that this is allowing him to use that to, to escape the death penalty. On the other hand, and particularly when we talked to the experts at the Bureau lab, we were concerned about this, that what his lawyer had told us is that it's buried in this national park that is frequented by Boy Scouts and families coming in and camping and otherwise. And what they told us was is that it wouldn't take much to detonate this dynamite, that you could literally just be hammering in a tent stake into the ground. And if it's at the wrong place, that could detonate the dynamite. And so that's horrifying yeah. to contemplate that you know that there is a clear and present danger, the location of which you do not know. So what'd you do? So we, look, this was not a decision I made individually. There were people at Maine Justice, I would still, um, in the Atlanta U.S. Attorney's Office at the time. We ultimately made the decision that we were going to talk with Rudolph through his attorney, that the agents were really concerned that this was all a setup because Rudolph hated federal law enforcement more than anything else. And he had booby-trapped. He had what they call sucker bombs that he had used to pull law enforcement in to the other. So the concern was, this was a booby trap for law enforcement to kill members of law enforcement. Exactly. When they go out there, just like, you know, going back, I'm really dating myself now, the Unabomber had booby-trapped his cabin there for that. And so they were very concerned that they were being set up here on this as well. But what we ultimately decided to do was that if he could identify where the dynamite was, if we're able to find it and it's there, we would, he would plead guilty to all of the bombings. He would serve a life sentence for, with no chance of parole, and we would take the death penalty notice off the table in both districts. So then you offer that. He gives you the general location of the dynamite, but it's not a street corner. No. It's a street address. It's like loose directions about where it might be. And so you find the dynamite? Yeah, there's no GPS coordinates, you know, to this. He's, and he's So got, you go up a hill, make a left. Exactly, it is. Right. It's, he's there with a topographical map and the prison with his lawyer. He didn't want to talk directly to the FBI because he didn't trust them. So his lawyer's talking to me. And it's like, you go up a hill and there's a sycamore tree there. And then you take <laughs> a left and you go down to this big rock. and you know, so To get to the dynamite. To get to the dynamite, which is there. And... They did. They followed the directions. Um, they did a terrific job. Did you go with them? Down. No, I was on the phone with Paul. In your office? There. Yeah, in my office, oh, okay. safely away from the dynamo. But we, other prosecutors were there. Yeah. I was the senior person. I was a guy. <laughs> <laughs> and they found it, and it was too volatile to move. They had to detonate it in place. In the spot? In the spot. They blew there. it up. They blew it up there. 
it made an enormous crater. I mean, many times the size of this stage. And you, an you remained in your office for this? Crater, yeah. Now, I know, I, sh I shouldn't have missed that. But, it um, might have been. But, the, you know, the quandary here was, and, and look, uh, other people might have made a different decision on this, but our sense was, was that we could not put the lives of innocent people at risk when we had an opportunity to do something to try to ensure their safety. And well, so, look, I think it's the right decision. You know, yeah. it's, 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 so, it's so easy to second guess prosecutorial decisions because you're considering accountability on the one hand, which might have been compromised against public safety. And he kind of had you here and you don't regret it, right? No, I think, I mean, I think Rudolph is where he should be. He's serving the rest of his life in Admax in Colorado. Um, but we also know that there aren't gonna be people who are out camping in that forest um, who unnecessarily are, are hurt or killed. We only have a few minutes left. Can I ask you about criminal justice reform? And there's this conversation in America today about this progressive prosecutor movement. I don't know exactly what that means. I like to think that you and I were, in many ways, progressive prosecutors. If you were, uh, not the Attorney General, but the sort of criminal justice czar of America. That is the Attorney General, by the not way. Not really. <laughs> they don't get to affect know, what I'm state kidding. prosecutors do. Are there one or two things that you think need to be done immediately to affect greater justice in America? Only one or two, or? Yeah. You've got to pick one or two, because yeah. we're running out of time. I guess. One thing that I feel really strongly about, first of all, we need to ensure proportional sentencing. And so I'll, I'll go with two here, proportional sentencing. We know that there are lower level nonviolent drug offenders who are serving more time in prison than is necessary for public safety. And not only is that diverting unnecessary resources to prison time, but it's undermining public confidence in the fairness of our system and rightly so. The second thing I would say is that we need to be doing a much better job of while people are in prison of ensuring that they have the tools they need to be successful when they get out. And that includes quality education programs in prison and job training and drug, uh, drug treatment, other things. We, we, we take people out of their homes, we put them in prison, we don't give them any skills or ability to be successful when they come out, and we somehow expect that things are going to be different when they're released. Um, that's also crazy. It also makes us less safe as a country, and it's, it's not really living up to the responsibility that we have. Let me ask you a slightly, um, maybe this would sound like an odd question. So I'm really proud of my public service. I'm proud of your public service as a prosecutor. There are a lot of folks in the country, on the left, who don't like prosecutors, who think prosecutors are bad, Kamala Harris just withdrew from the presidential campaign, not for this reason, but a lot of people said, well, her work was not a public service, and I have been heckled from time to time, literally just on the fact that I was a prosecutor. And what that entails is, on occasion, a lot, uh, that people are held accountable for crimes and they go to prison. What do you think about that criticism of prosecutors as a whole? Well, I think it all depends on, on how the prosecutor approaches his or her job. If they approach it recognizing their responsibility to seek justice and to stand up for victims and to make our communities safe, 
and to do it in a fair and proportional way, that's how you're supposed to be doing your job. And that absolutely is a public service. If you are one of those, I like to believe, rare prosecutors who doesn't look at it that way and who looks at it more of just sending as many people to prison for as long as you can, no, that's not going to be something that is respected. But again, the vast majority of folks I knew in the federal system are in the former category, not the latter. Me too. Here's a question from the audience. This is from Hope H. And the question to me is, do you think Sally Yates should run for Senate? I can't, I can't believe you brought your entire family <laughs> to this theater. You have a huge family, Sally. Please convince her with your awesome debate skills. <laughs> so, you don't like politics much, do you? And if, if, is that correct? And if so, I don't. I get asked this question, not in Atlanta, I get asked this question in New York from time to time, and I don't. How do you, before you answer this question, how do you feel about politics and the way that politics works generally? Well, I mean, that's such a broad question. I, I don't I think know. it's true that I would I say- I can narrow it. I don't like politics much. I mean, I- Do you love politics? It's not like one end of the spectrum or the other. I mean, I, I, I can know ask a it differently. Whole lot so of, why won't you run? So- <laughs> Running for Senate or, or that is just not something that's ever really felt like me. And I, I really am incredibly flattered by your support. And that means a lot. We've got some great people who are running. Yeah, but they're not and, you. Well, but they're terrific folks. But I just, I, I don't think that's the thing for me. All right. We've gone way long. I could talk to Sally Ace for 100 hours. Thank you for your patience. Let me end by, hold on. Let me end by saying we're friends and I've known you for a long time. Uh, I am deeply in awe of you. I think that what you stand for is something very important in America, generally, but especially at this time. And in particular, the way you took a position over which you lost your job is an important lesson to a lot of people. And my worry about the country now is that there are a lot of people who care more about their job than about what's right, whether it's in government or elsewhere. And if we could have more people like you who decided no job is worth the loss of integrity, we'd be a better country. So I applaud you. I applaud your service. Thank you for your friendship. And thank you all for coming tonight. They're standing again. It's for you. It's for you. And so comes to an end the Stay Tuned Live Tour of 2019. We went to Denver, to Detroit, to Minneapolis, and ended in Atlanta with my friend Sally Yates. I have a lot of observations about traveling around the country and doing these shows. I mean, thousands of people came out. And it never ceases to amaze me that so many people come out and are thoughtful and engaged, and they're buying tickets not to see a play or theater or a music program or dancing. They're coming out to hear people talk about the issues of the day and what's happening to the country. 
And we have a lot of fun. I tell some jokes. But we also engage in serious, thoughtful conversation. And to fill a theater in a city far away from New York City with people who come out on an evening when they have other things to do, to listen to that and to learn from that tells you a lot about your fellow citizens. It's a great honor and a great privilege to have audiences like that. And it's very humbling. We'll see you in 2020. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, David Kurlander, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.